Matthew chapter 22, starting at verse 23. Uh, and that's going to be the NIV version, the New International Version. The same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said. Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died. And since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and the third brother, right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? <laughs> Jesus replied, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Good morning. Good to see you. Virtually, that is. Um, we're thinking this morning about a theme that has launched uh, many TV programs. It is a subject of many, many films, a few theatre plays and countless books. You may not know what I'm talking about, but this is the theme of the passage. It's about life after death. It's about the resurrection. Is there anything after what we know in this world and in this life? Is there life beyond the grave? Is there a hereafter or not? That's what Jesus is talking about in this passage there was a, a man who taught me a great deal. His name's J.I. Packer. He died just over a week ago. He, he says this. There's a picture on the screen you can see. When it comes to the future, it's not an optional extra if you want to engage with it. He says this. Readiness to die is the first step in learning to live. Readiness to die is the first step in learning to live. Here's a man who was a Christian. He wrote countless Christian books and, and he influenced generations with his writing and with his speaking with his teaching with his ministry and he says you need to know about the future you need to be ready to die because if you don't know what's going to happen when you die you won't be able to live to the full you won't be able to live to the max it's not about pepsi or coke living to the maximum of your potential you need to know the claims of jesus claims j.i packer and Jesus, speaking to the Sadducees in our passage before us this morning, gives us a vision of what's beyond the door. What's beyond the grave? Is there an afterlife? And if so, what it, will it be like? Well, Jesus, Jesus opens the door in this passage as he speaks to the Sadducees. And it's something I want us to look at from Matthew 22. So please have your Bibles open on your lap so we can look at it together. And Jesus begins not with a gentle word, but he begins with a rebuke. He then reveals an argument and then he displays a promise. So rebuke, argument, promise. Let's look at the rebuke. Rebuke's the first thing I want us to look at. Look at sentence uh, 29, verse 29. 
in order to understand why Jesus speaks so firmly, so definitively to the Sadducees, we, we need to go back to the beginning of Matthew chapter 22 and, and this passage, verse 23. Dave read it to us just now that same day. The Sadducees, who say there's no resurrection, came to him with a question. We've met the Pharisees many times through the Gospels, through the Gospel of Matthew. The Pharisees were very moral, very conservative. They wanted to keep every jot and tittle of, of the law of God. And the Sadducees, if the Pharisees were conservative and rule-keeping, then the Sadducees were almost the polar opposite. They were almost the exact opposite of the Pharisees. And we're familiar with the Pharisees, we're not so familiar with the Sadducees. So, so who were they? Let's understand them so we can understand why Jesus spoke so firmly. Sadducees were, they were aristocrats, they were well-educated, they were the social uh, elite, they were the upper class, you could say, in modern English understanding. They, they did believe in God, but it was a kind of a stripped-down understanding of who God was. It was a very ethical definition of faith it was uh, morals but they didn't believe in a messiah they didn't believe that god would send someone to rescue them they didn't believe that god would send a send a king who would wipe away all wrongdoing and bring in the rule of god they, they didn't believe in a messiah like that and importantly for our passage as well they did not believe in the resurrection they didn't believe in an afterlife. They didn't believe in a future day of justice when God's king would come and put everything wrong right. They didn't believe in that. And the Pharisees and the, the Sadducees were a bit like uh, Liverpool and Everton or Man United and Man City. They didn't like each other. But they came together with a hatred of King Jesus. And that's why they came to Jesus to try and trip him up. They try and trip him up with the question that we read in verse 24, teacher. I don't think it was said respectfully. It was probably said with a mocking tone, with a, with a sneer on the side of their face. Teacher, we've got you with this question. We've been formulating it for a while. We've tested it with a few, uh, um, with a few audiences and we're going to come and trip you up. Verse 24, teacher. They said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and have children for him. Now, this is something that is called a Leverite marriage. This is something that was put in place in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 25. You can read from the law of God what uh, Moses said to the people of God. And namely, if, if there is a, a wife who loses her husband, She'll be very, very vulnerable. There's no social security. There's no one to care for her. And people wouldn't want to marry her because she's already been married. So she'd be very vulnerable. No one to care for her. She'd be perhaps an outcast socially. And so in God's kindness, in the, in the law of God, there was a provision for a widow to be cared for by the greater family. And so a brother of the deceased husband would marry his wife. Who was a who'd lost her husband? Who was all alone? She would be married for and cared for. Deuteronomy chapter twenty-five explains that someone else in the family would come along and care for the widow. And so, as you can see on the screen now, verses twenty-four to twenty-eight, there's this comical, puzzling question that the Sadducees ask of Jesus. 
Imagine a family with seven brothers. Look at these fine, dapper-dressed people. Imagine that there are seven brothers, Jesus, and each one dies in turn. When it comes to the resurrection of the dead, which we don't believe in anyway, says the Sadducees, and there's no children, who would she be married to? Jesus, we've got you. We're going to trip you up finally. You always have a way of getting away from the Pharisees. You won't get away from this question. And look how Jesus responds, not with tact. He doesn't use gentleness. He knows all things. And so he knows the motive of the heart of the Sadducees as they came to him. He knows it's not a genuine question. He knows it's a, a red herring and it's very revealing of their heart. So what's Jesus say? He says, verse 29, you're an error. Now, the original language uh, pulls no punches. It's stronger than that. Basically, Jesus is saying, you're wrong. You're just completely wrong. I mean, here is, a, here is an example of Jesus coming to his opponents with a two by four. Sometimes he speaks gently. Sometimes he speaks with passion and with accuracy in both occasions. But this is very different. This is, this is a straight up rebuke. You're completely wrong. It's not politically correct, but you're completely wrong. Throughout Matthew, throughout the Gospels, you see Jesus speaking to Pharisees and Sadducees, to the conservative right and the liberal left. And Jesus corrects every misconception, every mishearing, every misunderstanding that challenges the truth and the light and the glory of the gospel. And it's so important that you and I understand the gospel today so that we can refute error, not with a harsh tone, but with gentleness that Jesus models in other passages as well. And so we need to know the gospel. We need to know the gospel clearly. In one word, rescue. We need to know the gospel clearly in a few sentences so that we can explain it to people that desperately need to hear, that have a misunderstanding or a misapprehension of the gospel. So what's the gospel? The gospel is at least this. Our desire for autonomy, for self-rule, means that sin and evil have inflicted a great misery on the world. And God is a God of justice. And God is a God of complete control. So he can't overlook the fact that we are rebels, that sin has entered the world as his great evil. He hates oppression. He hates wickedness. He hates evil. He hates rebellion. And so what will God do? What has he done? God sent his son into the world to satisfy his justice. Jesus came. He lived a perfect life. He died the death that we deserved and he paid the penalty that our sin deserved. He's dying in our place as a ransomer, as a redeemer, as a savior for the whole world. Anyone that will trust in him will be rescued. He's met perfectly the standards of the bar of divine justice that is so high and pure that we can never reach it by our own attempts at goodness. And so that by faith, if we repent, if we turn 180 degrees from self-rule to dependence on Jesus, even this morning, when we rest in him, when we have faith in him, when we, are, when we see that we are weak and he is strong, we are completely accepted in God's sight by faith in Jesus on the spot. It's an example of God's 
undiluted, complete and amazing grace. That's the gospel in a few sentences. In one word, it's God's rescue mission. And so Jesus rebukes the Sadducees because the gospel is at stake. His resurrection, his ascension is at stake. It's a core issue that Jesus died for the sins of the world and that God raised his son in power and authority to life again. And so Jesus says, you've got it completely wrong. Now, we need to be able to do that. We need to understand the gospel so that we can lovingly and gently correct people who have misheard, who've misunderstood the gospel. We need to do it gently because our culture is in increasingly polarized and so we don't need more heat we don't need people to come aggressively to say you're absolutely wrong and let me tell you and let me put you straight and i'm the only one that can understand it clearly and correctly we need to speak gently we need to hear what people are saying and then we need with a word of comfort and truth that's uncompromising but we need to be gentle about the gospel but jesus knows their hearts He knows all things. So rather than gentleness in this example, he answers with a rebuke, with a firm word, because they're wrong about the afterlife. It's a a word of rebuke. And having seen with the authority of Jesus rebuking the Sadducees, he then displays an argument. He uh, demonstrates an argument. So look at sentence 29 as we move to the second point. He doesn't just rebuke the Sadducees who've got it completely wrong. He tells them where they've got it wrong. And it's in two areas from sentence 29. Did you notice two things, two parts to sentence 29? You've misunderstood the scriptures. That's the first point. You've misunderstood the Bible that you have. And you've also underestimated the power of God. Those are two things that Jesus says. These are two mistakes you've made. You've misunderstood what Moses said in the Bible and you've underestimated the power of God. He addresses the first error in verse 30, the scriptures. And then he also addresses the point of they've misunderstood the power of God. Let's take it in reverse order. Let's look at verses 31 to 32 first. Verses 31 to 32. In this uh, wonderful argument that Jesus has, he addresses the Sadducees on their own terms. They come to him quoting from the Bible that they only acknowledge the writing of Moses. That's the first five books of the Bible. And Jesus says, "Okay, I'll talk to you on your own terms because you've misunderstood the Bible. Look at verse 31. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read, says Jesus, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham. I'm the God of Isaac and I'm the God of Jacob. So Jesus said, he's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You want to talk about Moses, says Jesus. Let's talk about Moses. And he takes them back to Exodus chapter three, verse six, where God meets Moses, his servant at the burning bush. And at the burning bush, when God reveals his glory before he commissions Moses to do his will by leading his people from slavery to freedom. He reveals his glory by revealing his name. And he says this, I am the God of Abraham. I'm the God of Isaac and I'm the God of Jacob. I am. It speaks of God's pre-existent nature and character before the world was made. God was. There's never been a time when God did not exist in his purity 
and in his self-sufficient glory. But notice the language that Jesus uses as he quotes from Moses in Exodus 3 verse 6. God does not say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. He says, I am. Do you notice that? I mean, what difference would it make if God spoke in past tense rather than present tense? What, what difference would it make if God says, I was rather than I am? God is speaking of his covenant with his people in the present tense. I mean, they've been dead for millennia. They've been dead for centuries. And yet God says these words, not I was, I am. I'm the God of Abraham. I'm the God of Isaac. I'm the God of Jacob. We can miss the force of what God is saying here. When God spoke to Moses in the book of Exodus, he says, I don't just want to know you to know me as creator. I am that. I will always be that, the creator, the sustainer of all things. But I don't just want you to know me as creator. That's something that happened in the past. I want you to know me personally. I want you to know me through covenant. I want you to know me in a real lasting way. God says later on, I want you to know me personally and intimately, and I will know you in covenant. I'll make all the running. I'll make all the provision because I want you to know all Israel, that you are my people and that I'm your God. I want you to know that. And so when Jesus quotes these words, he's reminding his people, he's reminding the Sadducees and he's reminding you and me of the huge implications that God is I am. It means that our relationship will never, ever go into past tense. What do I mean? You've just seen a picture on the screen of people lowering a coffin into the ground, into a grave. It's the worst thing that we can know when we lose a loved one, when we lose a baby, a child, a friend. It's so painful. It's so raw. It's the greatest horror that you can experience for a relationship to go into past tense, to say, I did love what someone, I did know someone, I was married to someone, they were my friend. The way we were made is for relationships never to go into past tense, but they do because the world in which we live is marred by rebellion and sin. And the wages of our rebellion and sin is death. But it's not the way it's supposed to be. And Jesus says it's not the way it will be. Because I am the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. I mean, we have to say I had a spouse, I had a friend. But when you know Jesus, your relationship with him will never go into past tense. We'll never have to say goodbye to him. We will have to say goodbye to other people. And here's Jesus speaking to the Sadducees, people who didn't believe in a resurrection from the grave. And he says, remember Moses? Remember his relationship? Remember how he quoted? Remember how I point you back to what God has done? Moses spoke and heard God speak in the present tense. Because when you enter a relationship with me, whether it's Abraham, Isaac or Jacob is your name. It will never enter into past tense. God will never lose those who are precious to him. It's like Pinocchio. 
No, Pinocchio, this, this mythical character. Why, why does the story of Pinocchio resonate so vividly with us? I mean, I mean, here's the myth of Pinocchio, that this, this character that's controlled by strings, whose nose gets bigger. And what Pinocchio longs for, he says, if I could get someone who's real to love me as a puppet, it would make me real. If I could get someone to love me, it would make me real. That's exactly what happens to us by faith when someone becomes a Christian. Think about it. The love of Jesus is the only love in the whole universe that really makes you real. Makes you real now and on into eternity. Absolutely real, absolutely solid and permanent. The love of Jesus means that you'll never have to say goodbye to him. It never moves you into past tense. It's always present. The eternal one, the source of love, the one who defines love with arms outstretched on the cross. When he sets his love on a person, a man and woman, a boy or a girl, it means that, that though they die, they still shall live, says John's Gospel. Do you see how Jesus is arguing with the Pharisees? You say there's no resurrection of the dead. That's because you don't have a relationship with God. Get a relationship with God and then you will see and understand that you will sense and feel that the resurrection of the dead is real. And then no longer will you be sad, you see. Because you don't believe in the resurrection, the resurrection is real. Because God is always, I am. You'll feel it, you'll know it logically, you'll smell it, you'll sense it. Because God cannot be the God of the dead, he's the God of the living, that even though we die, so shall we live by faith in Jesus. That's a rebuke, he's told them off, that's an argument. You don't know God, that's why you don't believe in the resurrection. But then he finishes up with a promise. God finishes with the promises. Look at uh, sentence 29, Jesus opens the door again. It's as if he uh, is a doorman and he opens up and he gives us a glimpse of the future. At verse 29, he says, you know, you're an error. You're completely wrong because you don't know the Bible, but also because you don't know the power of God. Look at verse 30. Think about what Jesus is saying here. It's easy to mishear him. Verse 30, at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. It seems like Jesus is saying to the Sadducees in heaven, we're all just going to be friends. We're just going to have platonic relationships and if we're honest it, it sounds kind of bland what jesus is saying if he's saying that if he's saying there's no marriage uh, it sounds like the future is bland if it was a color it would be beige if it was uh, a food it would be like mushrooms that i think have got no taste because i'm not subtle i like strong flavors but but that's not what jesus is saying go back to verse 29 and see what jesus is saying you are in error why because you don't know the power of God. You've got no idea of the magnitude of the love of God that will be demonstrated and seen and made manifest in the future through the resurrection. The reason there's no marriage in the resurrection is not because we're going to be ethereal. You don't know the power of God, Sadducees. This is what Jesus is saying. The future will not be beige. It will not be bland. It's going to be fantastic because marriage will be subsumed. Marriage will be superseded. Marriage, the best moments in marriage 
in any relationship you have, but especially in marriage, that's the clearest signpost to the future. That's just, that's just a sense, that's just a foretaste of the depth and the height and the width of the love of God that we will enjoy with everyone who's worshipping him around the throne of God in the future. Marriage is just a foretaste of the reality of the joy that we will experience to the max when Jesus returns a second time. I mean, the greatest intimacy on earth will be nothing in comparison with the joy that we will experience. We won't just understand, but we're, it's sensory. We'll experience it as we worship Jesus on into eternity. When we look into our lover's eyes, when we feel, as it were, words fail us, when we feel the sense of his love in a real way, that, that faith, faith will be real, sight will be a thing of the past. We will know God. We will see him. I misspoke. Sight will be real. Faith will be a thing of the past. So what is that? If, if the future is not beige, if, if the future is real, if this is just a sense of the future that we're enjoying now, does that mean we're not going to know each other? That's not what Jesus says either. I mean, Abraham, Abraham will still be Abraham. Isaac will still be Isaac, right? If you're married, your spouse will still be your spouse. But rather being so focused on them, We'll be both focused on Jesus if you're Christians. We'll still be ourselves. There's going to be a depth of love and enjoyment and oneness and delight. We're going to be able to surf or, or walk with friends or enjoy a sunset. But at the center of it all will be King Jesus. The one whom we love, the one who we long to see, we will see and we will know because the resurrection, Mr. Sadducee, is real. It's a foretaste now of the future glory that we will know then. I mean, heaven is just a world of love. It's a love beyond marriage, not beneath it. That's what verse 30 says. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. There's going to be no more weddings, not because of COVID, not because of 30 and limited numbers. There'll be no more marriage. Why would there be no more marriage in the future? Not because it's old hat or passe or anything like that there'd be no more marriage because no more marriage is needed because everybody will have a spouse everybody will have a spouse every believer already has a spouse there'd be no more single people there'd be no more widowed people there'd be no more divorced people who feel alone every believer has a spouse whose name is jesus who's gone before us, who will never let us down, who will satisfy every longing in our heart and expose greater ones that we've yet to enjoy. That's why Paul can say these challenging words that are said at weddings so often. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why does Paul say that? I reckon Pinocchio, the story from it, was inspired by that sentence, perhaps. Because God is the only person who can put his love on us. And as he does so, he makes us real. God places his love on us because he paid the penalty. He's the ultimate bridegroom that we thought about last week. He welcomes us into this eternal feast that is going to satisfy every longing. Every... Uh, 
example of love that we experience that's real, that's wonderful in this world. It just prepares us for the future. And do you realize if you were to grasp this, if I were to grasp this more, what a profound difference this would have on our lives? Church is not about attendance, it's about joy. Marriages would just be a foretaste of the future. If we're single or alone, we would see that we have a bridegroom that's gone before us and that we want that day to come forward and speed that day. There was a, a lady called St. Teresa of Avila. She says this in a sentence, been slightly modernized. She says, the first moment in the arms of Jesus is going to make a thousand years of misery on earth look like one night in a bad hotel. Now, I've got one or two bad hotel stories, but let's reread that. What are we waiting for? What are we longing for? The first moment in the arms of Jesus, looking into his eyes, as it were, is going to make a thousand years of misery on earth look like one night in a bad hotel. What she's saying, if you know Jesus personally, intimately, if you're a Christian this morning, waiting for that day and seeing his love, seeing your lover, it will enable you to face anything. Paul says in another letter in the New Testament, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. It's going to be a feast that you're welcome to. If you're a Christian, you'll be there. And if you're not a Christian, I'd love to see you there. And all you need to do is to turn, turn your back on your old life and turn to Jesus afresh. Embrace him, say you're sorry and reach out to him in repentance and faith. And that's all you need to be at the feast of the king where he's the host, where we're the guests. And you'll be there for all eternity.